Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we discuss the landscape of American higher education and the luminaries who paint this portrait. And we're better to start than with our first guest, literary by name, historical by profession, versatile, visionary, and vanguard. She spends her days as the 28th president of Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Drew Faust. Thank you. So how have these past 1,000 or so days been, President Faust? Is it 1,000 days? Um, They've gone very quickly. Everyone has had something extraordinary happen within it. This place is full of so many different initiatives, talented people, challenges that it's constantly um, different from what it was the day before from what it's likely to be tomorrow. So it's just a very exciting place to be. Now, prior to your current position, you were dean of Radcliffe Institute mm-hmm. from 2001 to 2007 until you became the first female president of an institution that outdates our country. What did you feel you could contribute based on your skills and your background as president? I think the first um, aspect that I thought or dimension I could bring to the Harvard presidency was a long career in higher education. I went to graduate school beginning in 1970, and then I taught at the University of Pennsylvania from 1975 until 2000 when I came to Harvard. So I'd been in two different institutions as a teacher and administrator. And so I had a deep uh, commitment to the scholarly enterprise, to teaching, to research, to the things that I thought were central to what a university is. I'd also had the opportunity at Radcliffe to get a good glimpse of Harvard because Radcliffe itself doesn't have any faculty. And so I spent a lot of my time there reaching out to other schools, to faculty and other schools, to understanding some of the things that bind the university together. And I was very struck at how much didn't get bound together at Harvard and how much capacity we had that we didn't share across our schools. And so I felt that was something that I had seen and could act upon. So I think it was a deep commitment to the values and purposes of higher education and an understanding of a couple of different institutions that gave me some thoughts about what um, Harvard might do to become even stronger than it is. Now, starting your presidency, what were some of the main issues that you wanted to address? Well, when I started my presidency, one of the main things on my mind was this issue of trying to bring the university together to leverage its strengths more fully. I felt also another issue was the issue of inclusion. The whole Radcliffe experience had been in a sense about bringing a part of the university that had felt marginalized or even not a part of the university, which it actually legally wasn't until 1999. Um, And it represented a group of people who had not, women who had not felt fully included. So that made me very sensitive to the notion of access and of full participation in this community. So one of the very first things I was able to do as president was to enhance our financial aid program to uh, reach out in a revolutionary way that our peers quickly followed. So we we set a a kind of leadership stake in the ground. But that was based on these values of um, opening higher education to everyone of talent, regardless of their circumstances or gender or race or whatever. might differentiate them one from another. Now, in Ireland this past summer, you spoke eloquently about the role Mm -hmm. of the international university in a global world and the importance of the liberal arts. 
In your closing remarks at Trinity College, you said, look to the past to help create the future. Look to science and to poetry. Combine innovation and interpretation. We need the best of both. And it is universities that best provide them. Tell us a bit about your professional past within the university. My professional past within the university began as a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had the wonderful experience of fellowship support to undertake my studies and to begin to explore questions that had intrigued me since I was a small child growing up in Virginia. And those were questions about how the South of the 1950s and 60s in which I grew up had come to be the very complicated but rapidly changing place that it was. And so I was interested in the history of the Civil War, of slavery, of race, of the issues that still to me seemed to shape who we were and how we made our decisions as uh, citizens and as a nation. And so I turned to history and began studying Southern history with an eye always to uh, the ways in which history shapes us and defines our current identities. So I always had a sense of the uh, relevance of my scholarly inquiry to understandings of the present, but I also had a sense of the inability of the present to move forward in the most effective and positive way without that kind of larger context of understanding where it had come from. So for me, this interaction of past and present has always been, of scholarship and of life, has always been at the core of what I wanted to do. When I started teaching at Penn in 1975, after I got my degree, I was very lucky to be given a course right in my field, which was a big undergraduate course on the history of the American South. And it was a course that fulfilled various requirements for students across the spectrum of Penn's undergraduate schools. And Penn, unlike Harvard, has schools that, uh, the Wharton School, um, an engineering school that is separated from arts and sciences, and a nursing school. So you had pre-professional students as well as liberal arts students. Every semester I taught at Penn over the next 25 years, I taught that course. And the history of the South changed before my eyes during that time. I mean, the whole growth of the New South, the election of Jimmy Carter as president. And so there was always a kind of interface, interaction between what I was teaching about history and what was going on uh, in, in the daily lives of all of us as we looked at a changing United States. And I also was involved very deeply in research all that time, increasingly focused on war. And I think that was because of our um, present-day concerns about the Vietnam War, the aftermath of the Vietnam War, the Gulf War. And so my interests evolved, shaped in no small part by what I was seeing in the world. So as a teacher and a scholar, I felt very fulfilled, but I was often asked to take administrative roles because I was one of a kind of initial phalanx of women moving into the academy. And as people hoped to have more of those women represented in positions of leadership, there I was. So I resisted this for quite some time and said, no, I didn't want to be this or that. I headed a lot of committees, but I never took a full-time administrative role until Neil, Neil Rudenstein called me up and told me about this wonderful new Radcliffe Institute and this experiment. And I thought, this sounds great. I, this sounds exciting. It sounds like I'd have lots of time to do my scholarship, but I also could make a mark on the world's most important institution of higher education, on the uh, integration of this part of Harvard within Harvard more generally. And I thought I was the right person at, at the right moment. It was the right moment in my life. So I came here, and I really liked that kind of work. I liked working in teams with people. 
I liked being able to set goals and accomplish them and see the results before my eyes. And I found that it was uh, very important to me to try to contribute something to what universities are. So look what happened there. We're lucky to have you. The biggest challenges that are facing Harvard right now are what? There are a lot of challenges facing Harvard night right now, and let me just focus on three of them. The first is, of course, we're still um, dealing with the aftermath of the financial crisis, and that was something that it was properly called a crisis for the months of 2008, late 2008, and into 2009. I think we've grappled with it very well. We've we, uh, responded quickly, got out ahead of a lot of the issues, and began to make appropriate changes. But it also alerted us to a lot of questions about how we do our work and a lot of opportunities to look at parts of Harvard that we began to see we could um, improve. And so I feel we're now in kind of the aftermath of that moment of extreme crisis into a time of opportunities spawned by the crisis to think about important changes that we would not necessarily have envisioned apart from the necessities imposed on us by the crisis. Just to give one example, uh, we're looking at our libraries and we feel that we can do a much better job of integrating their activities and moving them into a changing world of digital information as well as print information. And I think those are questions we wouldn't have thought to ask or dared to ask apart from what we went through in 2008, 2009. So the opportunities of the crisis, I would say, are one thing. A second is the opportunities of what's happening with knowledge. Uh, we read a lot, and I wrote in that Ireland speech, or said in that Ireland speech, about how knowledge is at the core of our economy, of economic growth. It, we live in a knowledge-driven world, and that is, of course, true. But knowledge is changing its shape in lots of ways. How we get information, how fields interrelate. If we think about the sciences, the divisions between physical and, and life sciences are breaking down. I went last week to uh, the Doug Mountain Stem Cell Lab, and I was being shown some activity they're involved in analyzing cells, um, ALS cells. And the way the process ends is with uh, a lot of digital visual examination of these cells on computers. And so there's a, a young man sitting there who does all this, writes the programs. And I said, did you begin as a biologist or did you begin as a physicist? And he said, well, I began as a biologist, but many people who do this visual analysis begin as physicists working on light and computers and a whole series of aspects of physical science. But these are completely wedded now in um, the work to improve human health through stem cells. If we look in our um, professional schools and in the social sciences and the humanities, those are increasingly integrated as well. So how do we respond as a university to the changing shape and organization of knowledge? How do we enable people to take advantage of each other's expertise and get out of intellectual silos and come together? So that's the second area. The third area, I think, is the changing shape of higher education and how it's funded, how, who it includes, how it fits within societies. 
from China to Ireland to the United States. And so as I travel to Ireland or travel to China and meet with university presidents there, or as I in the United States talk to other university presidents who are facing challenges uh, a variety of sorts, just asking the questions about where higher education is going, how we afford it, and how we um, accomplish all we, we would aspire to as a third area of importance. As part of your role as college president, you've been doing a lot of traveling. How are you being received in various countries as the ambassador of Harvard? People are very interested in Harvard um, wherever I go. Uh, in China, I felt as if I was the head of a small country in the way they received me. Um, it was as if I had some kind of diplomatic status. There is a uh, very strong belief in the importance of learning in China, and Harvard is seen as a kind of bastion of that within the United States. So people want to understand the model through which the United States has so broadly increased the number, percentage, and number of students in higher education, how it has achieved the research innovations it has, and so there's great fascination. There's also a lot of um, knowledge of Harvard by those who have been connected to it, alumni all over the world. When we went to Japan in the spring, uh, there are more than 3,000 alumni in Japan. And so they are so excited to have an occasion to come together to think about Harvard, to meet the Harvard president. So this response comes both from our family of alumni, but also from a wider range of individuals who really are interested in what Harvard is and what it represents. You were an academic for decades, now an administrator. Is there anything about the life of the professor that you miss? Yes. And I, um, I find that I'm very tied to knowing and learning all the time. It's as if I, I need to have gasoline in my tank, and that gasoline is what I read and what I learn. So I was very grateful to have some time this summer just to sit and read books because I think in response to what I read. And so when I have a chance to learn something new, then I get an idea or I get an angle or I get an insight that may not be directly related to what I read, but somehow is sparked by that process of ingestion of information and ingestion of perspectives through, through uh, knowledge and learning and reading. We really appreciate your time today. Our guest has been Dr. Drew Faust, president of Harvard University, who once wrote, Meaning, it is about wisdom. Wisdom that must be stirred and awakened time and again. This is the ethos of our EdCast. President Faust, for providing us with greater meaning today and stirring the collective wisdom of our listeners. We thank you kindly. Thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.